Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Collective. We have another fantastic show for you planned out today. Very excited. We got Kathy back. We got Sarah back. We got Steve back. Very, very awesome to have you guys. Um, now, while I am that excited, y'all should be excited too. Like the show, subscribe to the channel, hit the notification bell, do all those good things so you get your emails in the morning whenever we go live, which is, of course, every day. Now, if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, anything at all, by all means, put them up in the comment section. And I don't see a winter storm comment here, but I guess we'll just have to move on without it. So no bigs. Um, any thoughts or issues before we guys, you guys have been watching Coaches Week at all? guys been able to sneak in i've been on a show all week so and 6 a.m rap times so i haven't had a chance no worries well we've had some amazing thoughts we've had some amazing questions i got two more on deck and we are ready to jump in unless anybody's got any thoughts before we give her very good let's do it okay first question comes from our friend winterstorm who isn't here to listen to this but here we go anyway hey there the collective and coaches Question for you. If I am being coached by you and I disagree with something that you're doing, how do you want me to let you know? And what, if anything, do you expect me to bring to that conversation other than I don't like what you're doing or I don't think you should be doing that? Be interested in your thoughts. Thanks. That's an interesting start off to the day. I'm going to pick Steve. You're going to go first. What are your thoughts? I, I love the question, first of all, um, because I think transparency between coach and um, athlete or person we're working with is, is mission critical for sure. Um, I, when I'm coaching mountain biking, I generally am working in a, a group context. And so what I let my riders or athletes know is that like, I have a multitude of ways in which I can explain something. And so if the direction that I'm going isn't working for anybody in the group, then they should absolutely voice their concerns um, because I can switch up how I communicate that to them. Um, because of the different types of learners that we know are out there, there's visual learners, kinesthetic learners, auditory learners, et cetera. It's my job as the coach to be able to access them in a way that suits their learning style. And it, it can be a little awkward because in group dynamics, somebody doesn't want to be the squeaky wheel. Um, but at the same time, I want them to squeak so I can grease it. Because in my case, they've essentially paid top dollar for the service and I want to make sure that they're getting their value. And I find that the value can be limited if they're not willing to express their, their needs. And big, bigger picture, because we tend to work with people over a six day period, it's like the relationship I build with them on day one really does lay the groundwork for how we navigate the following five days. So as to, to directly answer his question, I would expect him to bring honesty and transparency to that conversation and a willingness to a willingness to engage because how can I how can I um, address the issue if I'm not fully aware of what it is? Whether it's language use, whether it's it's maybe the de the demos aren't clear clear enough for him. Um, that's what I would want engagement and transparency. I like it. I like it. Sarah, what about yourself? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I would just want someone to directly tell me up front. Um, I don't think it does anybody any favors to hold on to um, a level of discontentment, whether it's in teaching or life. And we can't if we can't communicate openly and have that transparency, then we can't fix it. And then strictly from like the coaching and mentoring aspect, I want to know why. So don't come to me and just say, I don't like that you're doing this because that's not helpful. But if you're like, hey, Sarah, I don't like the way you do this. This is why. Then now I know it's you don't like it because of either how I'm delivering the information or you truly don't like the content. And then that way we can address, is it something that can be changed? And sometimes it can and sometimes it can't. Like if it's a safety issue, I'm not going to change something. But if it is you know, something that is flexible and can be delivered a different way that I'm absolutely open to change it, but you can't know until you know why. Absolutely. Kathy, what are you thinking? Yeah. I mean, when we're coaching in most martial arts, the um, martial arts instructors tend to be very um, uh, old school or traditional and it's my way or the highway in a lot of cases. So uh, especially the older black belts that have been around the mats for a lot of years or decades, 
And when it's their turn to demo something, they definitely don't want a challenger of any sort. And I've really uh, been disappointed with that over the past couple decades, seeing that. So it's one thing that I've consciously made sure that I changed, even though I'm one of the old black belts on the mat and have decades of experience. And, you know, it's the ego that gets challenged. And if especially a brand new white belt challenges you and says, hey, I just read or I saw on Instagram a way to do that throw. Okay, if it's brand new white belt who just saw on Instagram, they still may have some value to showing you a more correct way to do that throw. And I welcome it because maybe it'll give some value to the rest of the demo that others have been wanting to ask forever. And so even a brand new first day white belt who saw something on Instagram could lead to a really good discussion of why that technique could be explored in a different way, how we could do a combination with it. I didn't think of that before. You saw that on Instagram with that combo entering from that throw. Great, let's explore that. And it leads to a whole nother discussion. Of course, you can't let it get out of hand and then you go off into Instagram experimentation practice. You have to keep the group in check and, and do that little bit of exploration. But I always welcome, whether it's somebody who's been doing judo for, 50 years, 40 years like I have, or it's a brand new first day white belt, because you can explore something that leads to great discussions later. And transparency, like you say, is key. Yeah, 100%. Sean, you got a uh, point to add? I do. So uh, I think, first of all, I'd like to establish, and we're all thinking of this question through the lens of ourselves as coaches and what we coach and our experience in coaching and the various sports or activities that we coach. Uh, but uh, I'd just like to broaden our mindset out just a little bit more and consider that uh, for certain things, there's time sensitivity. So, you know, when someone asks a question, you got three seconds. And, and it depends on the setting. You know, it depends yeah. on how big the group is. It depends on the, the um, tactical situation. And so it, there are many w ways that we could answer this, uh, given, you know, building out various scenarios. But I, I think I'm just going to do it simply and, and state this, that um, how to ask the question, just freaking ask it. And uh, if you're a day one noob with me, you might ask it right, wrong, not right, not wrong, doesn't matter. Ask it. I'll set the culture from that point on. So if you, if you ask it and, and you're going to ask it via the means of a 47-minute uh, long monologue where you explain to me how many times you've changed diapers as well, cool, irrelevant. <laughs> but uh, at the end of the 47 minute, I'll nod my head and say, okay, so your answer was grab the door handle, twist it, and walk through it. There's your answer. And that's all that needed to be said after 47 minutes. But the moment that I give them the answer, it will then go straight into the next point, which is, okay, so here's the thing. Uh, next time we're into this sort of a, um, an arrangement where you have a question, no need to take 47 minutes. You don't have the time and I don't have the time. And so before you hit me up with your next question, take more time to condense your time and deliver it in a timely fashion. And so I'll say that really nicely, or I'll say it direct, concise, and to the point, dependent on who's in front of me, on who asked the question. So it's my job over a period of days, weeks, months, and years to create the culture of question asking and what their expectation is in the way of a question answer. And so between myself and that individual, we'll figure it out. And here's the Here's the, the trick as far as I'm concerned as a coach, and, and I was a boutique one-on-one -on -one coach mostly, is every single 100 people in front of me all go through that cultural question sort of calibration process with me, and every single one of them will be a bit different. We, me and them, will have developed our pattern, our rhythm, where this is how we answer questions. This is how we ask questions. And so for person to person to person, a 
uh, identical question from all 100 of them will take anywhere from 8 seconds to 80 seconds to ask the question and anywhere from 8 seconds to 8,000 seconds to answer. It's very much dependent on the individual and the culture that they and I set between us. And that's refined over time. It's not like it gets solved in the first month and then we kind of lock that grid down and we never deviate from that. It's a constantly evolving partnership from coach to coachy. Uh, there we go. I, uh, I 100%, I really love these. And I was actually, I wrote down time sensitive right off the bat. <laughs> as soon as we started, uh, you guys started answering the questions. It's like, ooh, but what about time? Sometimes you don't have time to answer questions. You got to move. And, uh, but here's another point in the point to this in the question he asked about disagreements specifically, and you get, we talked to, you guys talked about, um, how to ask questions and stuff like that. But what if they straight up just, I don't agree with what you're doing. Absolutely. Is there a way to, um, I don't know, lead them into it or is it a course of, well, then I guess you need to find a new coach or is it, is it become a hard and fast, like can't do this anymore or is it a developed thing? Sarah, I'm going to come to you. What do you think? Oh, sorry. Um, I muted. There you go. Oh yeah. It's okay. No, I was just saying, I think it's pretty loaded because, you know, depending on the situation or what the topic of disagreement is, you know, that very well could be like an okay, like then I think we should truly just part ways. It'll be better for each of us because maybe our ethical stance doesn't align or the way we approach things more like morally does not align. Or maybe it's, you know, it, again, it comes back to safety of the athlete or safety of the environment or safety of the group. And then at that point, there's not time for disagreement. Um, in the group setting, like, frankly, that'd be like an okay I hear you, we can talk about it after class, but we're not going to take away from the group in this moment. Um, so that it's really, I would just say that's a, a very dependent thing based off your setting. I like that. Kathy, what about yourself? Yeah, hundred um, percent. And Sarah touched on the safety. Um, if it's, for example, last night conducting a stunt and the actress wants to do the stunt, which is to fall into the blocks of wood you know, head first, and because she wants something for her reel, you know, she disagreed with me that I had to put the stunt double in, in this case, because we don't want to sacrifice your money maker, which is we need to have you for the rest of the shoot. In that case, safety first. I don't care that you disagree with me. This is what has to happen for safety. You know, basically, we say that in a very nice way. And, um, in a judo setting, for example, it would be completely different. It would be, oh, okay, that's great. And, and you disagree on how this technique should be performed because the, the kochigiri should be performed first before the sienegi. I agree. And let's explore that, even if they're brand new and they're asking that question. And that's something they really disagree with me on. Or the gokyo shows it on YouTube this different way. I'll be like, great. How, how do you see it? And then I'll entertain that and be a lot more willing. So like Sarah said, setting dependent and safety dependent is when we uh, address that disagreement and how. I like it. Steve, thoughts? For sure. I mean, uh, completely echo the comments of, around safety because, I mean, in mountain travel or the wilderness or mountain biking, like safety is make or break and, and somebody can get really injured. Um, I have definitely had conversations with people in both environments where I've said, you know what, I might not be the guy for you and that's okay. I'm okay if I'm not the guy for you. And I think ego is an interesting one. Like we've chatted about before, because the response I've gotten from people when I've acknowledged that I might not be the person for them, like I might not be the best resource for them, usually de-arms them or disarms them and brings them way down a notch. Because what I've done is I've expressed the vulnerability to, to admit that, hey, I might not be the guy. And let's find you the right person to make sure you're getting what you need. Um, I've had, I, and I have had a couple of cases where those people have agreed with that and we get through the day. And then I make sure I've, I find them another resource to make them, to make sure they're getting what they need. It's, it's for me, coaching is not about me at all. It's about what I provide for somebody to fulfill their goals. 
um, that a couple cases that has that has happened, but more often than not, when I'm willing to go into that place with them of vulnerability, that's when kind of the truth sort of comes forward. Like, okay, it's not you. I'm afraid of this, or it, I, you know, I did appreciate this. It just wasn't what I was hoping for. And then what that does is it opens up the door to like, okay, let's reevaluate and let's target what it is you're actually here for or what it is that you need and how you need it delivered. Um, and so in those straight up disagreement moments, it's like, okay, yeah, I might not be the guy, but I would love to understand why I'm not the guy so I can get better at my practice. Like, I mean, I think that's one thing I appreciate about Sean is that he's always willing to look for how to get better not just as like a coach delivering content, like how can I get better as a human in terms of communicating with people that are not enjoying what I'm providing? Like uh, there's always something to learn from that to make myself better. And so I just like coming back to that idea of transparency, I think that that's the critical piece. Absolutely. Sean, point? I do. And so I think it's, um, the answer is, it's not a clean answer. I can't provide a, a, a one, one point answer here to the general question because it really depends on the phase of the coach's life, how long they've been coaching maybe. And uh, it might also depend on, you know, let, let's say it's a, a coach who's been in the game one year versus a coach who's been in the game 20 years. And so those are two very different coaches. And now to my point, they're two very different coaches in the sense of confidence, in the sense of who they are as a coach, in the sense of what they bring to bear, and if they feel sure of their abilities to coach anyone on the planet, except the person in front of me who's being very disrespectful. And so you've got to understand when that is an actual thing. So when you're first starting out as a young coach, it might like... Some young coaches feel like the world is kind of lining up against them sometimes because the questions are a bit much and it feels like everyone's kind of taking a little bit of a stab at you. They want their pound of flesh and, and you know, it can get a bit much as a young coach. And so you, I think that as a young coach, it, you're a way more fragile coach. And unless you kind of take time every day to just ground yourself and think, okay, I got this and... You know, when he said that or she said that, it wasn't personal. Or maybe it was personal. I got to get in line with that and figure out what's going on here. And like, you really have to be on your game as a young coach. But as a seasoned coach like me, I don't, I'm not fragile. And so uh, when I have someone who's extremely challenging in front of me, it ain't going to break me, but it might break a young coach. And so to Steve's point, um, I do love someone who is challenging. I love someone who will disagree with me, actually. I, I appreciate it, man. Like, I respect it. But what I don't respect is disrespect. And so there's a fine line between pushing hard against me as a coach, if I'm coaching you, and then crossing the line over into disrespect. And that disrespect usually comes from someone who likes to gamify the disagreements who likes to just keep push, push, pushing until they get the response that they want, which usually is buying into their own internal dialogue of, I'm just really angry right now. My, my life is in ruins or this or that. I didn't sleep well. The kids, my wife, the dog, the whatever, all of the things, they're just angry that day and they just want to get in a bit of a fight. They just want to get into a little bit of a verbal. And I'm just the wrong guy to fight with. Because I just won't put up with your nonsense. But a young coach might. And so the disagreement aspect, if someone is disagreeing with me, freaking bring it on. I love it. I've heard most of them. Uh, but uh, if you're a young coach, it's a way more fragile situation. And so um, I guess my message would be twofold. For the experienced coaches out there, awesome. Bring me all of your disagreements. But for the young coaches out there, when things are feeling a little bit spicy in that disagreement that's being driven at you, just don't, don't try to get all, um, all up in its grill. Don't try to engage with maximum velocity. Don't try to, you know, create novel solutions in that moment where you think, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do here. Screw that guy. I'm going to dial up the pace. 
just just take a moment and relax and then call another coach who's been in the game a long time and can give you some advice, can kind of walk you back from the edge and just say, okay, yeah, I've been there and done that. And so here's what you can consider as your next moves. Play it out, get back to me. And so uh, all the coaches out there, the young ones, you've always got peers who've been in the game longer that you can rely on for these kind of moments. Yeah, I really like that. Um, <clears throat> now, I, I, I want to get your guys' thoughts on what Sean just said too, but I just want to hit this up, Winter Storm, jumping in. Good morning, coaches and everyone. Good to see you. Um, and to anybody else watching, if you guys do have comments, questions, by all means, put them up in the comment section. And I do apologize. I forgot to give you guys intros. That was my oh, bad. Yeah, I completely, I was just so excited to get the conversation started. All that right. was my bad. So I apologize. And for that's that. my bad. I should have picked up on that as well. Yeah, well, uh, I just wanted to I, get into the combo. I disagree with you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's a good pushback. Uh, but Sarah, I do. Uh, let's go back to you. Any thoughts on what Sean just said in terms of like how to deal with that disagreement? Yeah, I think I really like that point um, that Sean brought up about you know, as a young coach, you have so many peers, but even as a seasoned coach or mentor, you, you always have peers. Um, and I think that's one thing from the coaching space. Um, cause so Sean brought up the fact that, you know, maybe that disagreement from that athlete has nothing to do with what you're saying. Maybe that disagreement entirely comes from their environment. And so I think that that is a skill that discernment as a coach and mentor to, decide, you know, is this, is this a me thing or is this a, a, a you thing? And then being able to not only de-escalate the situation, if it is in fact a you thing and being able to manage and handle that appropriately, and then to not taking it personally, but then also understanding as a coach, you also have to create that space where if you are having something that is entirely about you, you don't bring that to your athletes and then add gas to the fire of their emotional meltdown because then you just have created a situation that you know may be irreparable both professionally and for that athlete mm, i like that steve thoughts yeah i mean i love i love what sean said about the idea of being a younger coach versus an older coach because we all have been younger coaches at the time and I absolutely still after, I mean, I've been coaching mountain biking for 22 years in the bike park and I still have my people that I'll go to and be like, Hey, am I seeing this correctly? Like, am I, am I looking through the right set of glasses at this? Um, whether it's a tough client or whether it's uh, environment, whatever it is like, Hey, can I bounce this off of you? And I think in my life, I have that, uh, uniquely and that's what sarah was alluding to there was like the idea of, of mentorship right like we're all in this hustle on multiple levels of our lives and i trained somebody yesterday they came to the high school for uh, we had a pro d day yesterday and um uh, elementary school principal reached out to me and said hey i've heard what you're doing at your school can i come train with you and see what it is i can bring to my elementary age kids so she showed up and I had a workout planned an interval, um, nothing special, but I looked at her face and this is where I think the, the in coaching nuance is super important because what I did is I just did a check-in with her. I was like, how are you feeling mentally and emotionally today? Like, are you ready to get after it or should we be scaling this? Um, after I explained the workout to her and it was just the look she gave me, I said, why don't we just sit and chat for a few minutes first? And 45 minutes later, the bucket was empty and we had, we had talked about a lot of things that she needed to talk about. And then I said, okay, now let's go to work. Let's put, let's put the bags down, let's do our work. And then if we have to pick them back up and chat some more, we can, but I'm willing to bet you're going to look at things a little bit differently after the work is done. And so we didn't talk anymore. We just got after it, did the work. And at the end of it, the, just the look on her face and then the look in her eyes was different. And I said, are we good? And she's like, yeah, she's like, I needed that. And so it's just the ability to kind of like maybe read somebody, look at the look on their face and, and it's okay if the work gets postponed, if you have the timeline. So we did have the timeline to be able to have that conversation first and then crack on with the work. And then the door gets left open. Like, if you need me, I'm here, you know? So I think, I think experience is what allows us to do that or having a willingness to reach out to somebody who's got the experience to help us navigate it. Yeah. I really like that a lot. Kathy, you got any thoughts? Sorry. I was on mute. I was so engrossed and Steve's, uh, stuff there it's uh yeah exactly what steve said the um experience from coaching 
of years to read an athlete. It's um, sometimes we don't have the time, but if we do, like I lean on my other black belt coaches a lot to um, I'd rather almost become uh, not their friend, but their mentor and their emotional support. So I'll be off on the side of the mats helping because I've got a, a big mission about women in uh, martial arts and I'm trying to get more women into judo. So I'll actually come and spend that time with uh, Kaylee on the side because she's having a meltdown over here instead of completely running the class. I used to be very much in my young coaching days. I have to be the center of attention. I have to be the coach showing the techniques. I have to always be the one doing the demo to show off my skills. And so they'll respect me. And then I realized over time, getting more experience as a coach, actually, um, especially as I get older, the young ones can demonstrate just as good or even better than I can. And I can have the time with my athletes to go through and find out their emotional state and why they're not in practice. Why are they sitting over in hospital corner for an hour during our hour and a half uh, practice you know what's going on in your head um so i'll sit with them and find out i think honestly the mentally and the the, the mental and the emotional factors of an athlete are just as important if not more important than the actual practicing of our athletes and uh, like steve touched on it's very important to uh, align yourself with them and where they're at long before you try to just put them through the trenches because it'll be a wasted practice if you need to, like Steve said, sit with them for 45 minutes before you get in 10 minutes. That 10 minutes going to be quality instead of the hour that would have been useless quality but quantity. And so getting in line with your athletes, I think, is as important as them putting in the work. Yeah. I totally agree with that one. Now, I have <clears throat> I have another question on this. It's kind of along the same lines, but are, any other thoughts on that before we move on to the next thing? Sean, what do you got? I do. So uh, two things, uh, both that Kathy had mentioned. Uh, one is uh, quantity and quality. And so as a young coach, you're, you're striving for quality, but you're not going to achieve it until you've hit enough quantity. And then when you've had enough quantity, to understand quality, then usually as a coach, as you move further into the coaching game, your focus becomes on quality rather than quantity. So you have to focus on quantity to understand quality. Once you taste quality, then you start focus on quality, which removes the quantity. And that's, that's how things work, man. That's how things work for me. And, and I think that's how things work for a lot of top tier coaches. You're coaching thousands or hundreds or dozens or whatever. And then uh, eventually, as you get further and further decades later, now you're coaching 10 or 15 or on, only 20 uh, athletes. And, uh, but each one of those 20 athletes are freaking crackers. They're, they're, they're like hammers. And I mean hammers in the sense of maybe one's a world champion, but maybe one is a category four racer, which is like not a big deal, but it's a big deal to me. Because it's a big deal to them and because they're in the freaking quality game with me. And so whoever I'm looking after, it doesn't, they don't have to show up large and in charge. In fact, I prefer them not to be large and in charge when they show up. But eventually they're going to become large and in charge. And so I'm happy to bounce a large and in charger if they ain't in the game for the right reasons. If they ain't in the game with me for the right reasons. If they ain't passionate, see you later. If you're being a goof, see you later. If you want to argue with me just because you're argumentative, see you later. You don't like my answer and you're going to fight me on it? Prove me wrong, give me a different answer, or move along. I don't have time at my age to work through the problems that I worked through when I was a very, very young coach of someone who's just a bit argumentative and has got away with it all their life through all of the coaches that they've moved through until they bounce into me. I'm like a freaking brick wall on that stuff, man. You'll, you won't get past me. You'll either bang your head against it until you quit and move along, or you'll bang your head against it until you get right with the program. That's your two choices if you show up all argumentative and, uh, and, and not willing to listen. And so the coach, it's the coach's job to set the tone. It is the athlete's job 
to get right with the program. If it doesn't align either in year one or year 20, even if you're the best coach in the world, don't throw a ship anchor down and say, I ain't moving from this spot until I fix this person. Move them along. Maybe they're not the right person for you so that you can focus on your team 100%. If your distraction is now over to the person who just wants to be a goof, it's pulling, it's pulling you away from the athletes who aren't goofs. So, you know, be discriminatory in these things. In my early stages of coaching, I wanted to fix the world, man. Put the, the worst athlete, the worst human being in front of me, and I wanted to fix it. I tried in some cases. And so it was a waste of my life, of my time, that I could have been giving to other people who were passionate and in the game of wanting to become better. So be discriminatory in who you accept, whether you're 20 years in the game or 20 months in the game. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Any other thoughts on that before I ask this question? It's, it's in the same line, so we're not going to be straying too far, but it's, it's just slightly off the side here. Um, <clears throat> my thought is, we kind of touched on it in the green room just prior. It was tradition versus progression. And in terms of like a dojo or a, a coaching aspect, or, you know, you're, you have a traditional rule set, let's say like judo, especially, you know, comes from, what is it? The 14th century in Japan, right? So like if nothing changes, if nothing progresses, then you're still stuck in the 14th century. But at the same time, you don't want to lose the traditional aspects of whatever it is you're doing, what the, the formation of it, the processes. And so I'm going to use jujitsu as a, as an example, because I think it's a really great one. There are traditional schools where you bow on and off the mats, you bow to the instructors ahead of time, everyone gets lined up, you bow to the masters, you got this whole thing that you do beforehand. And there's others that you just, you know, you wander onto the mats, you know, Hey man, what's up? And slap bump and go. Right. So I want to get your guys' thoughts on, you know, when, tradition is either challenged in your dojo or in your particular element and how to kind of develop that progression through your own training. So I'm going to start with Kathy because you got the most experience with judo, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Like we were talking about in the uh, green room earlier, the um, tradition of judo is so ingrained since 1882, since it was invented, that it's, it's really tough to bring some of the old school senseis to the modern era, because there are ways now to progress that are much quicker um, with the aids of technology, et cetera, that they're not willing to look at. And their senseis, they did it this way. So I'm going to do it this way and you'd better do it this way. And as far as technique goes, that's the uh, sort of old school sensei way of teaching. And, it, and it's been passed down for so many, too many decades centuries that it it may not ever change in a lot of the schools and the new ones have popped up schools that are kind of like a cross between brazilian jiu-jitsu and judo where they still like my school i tried to still instill all of the tradition and etiquette that judo is and we do bow onto the mat and line up and we bow to sensei kano we start our our, our practice and we talk about tournaments and tournament strategy as well as here's the techniques but we use modern era aids such as technology to play back from that last tournament and uh dissect how that that fight went and that would never be accepted by an old school sensei they just uh you do it this way and that's it they put their belt their uh, thumbs in their belt and stand on the side of the mat and say Oh, these new school sensei, you know, they just shun all of us that are trying to bring in any sort of technology or new way of teaching. So it's been a battle for a long time to kind of break those old senseis into the new era. And they're slowly coming around and letting a lot of the new senseis take over. New meaning like me, who's old, but I'm with the new way of teaching a little bit. And then I go to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and it's almost every dojo I go to is slap, bump, let's roll. They got their uh, belt hanging around their neck. Uh, it's almost some of them are 
too, the pendulum swung the other way too far. You know, some of them are smoking a joint when they walk on the mat with the belt strung around their neck. And that to me isn't respectful. It's maybe the news Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and how it is in all the, you know, modern clubs. But uh, I like to retain a little bit of that ethics and etiquette and tradition with also bringing in some new school teachings. And that fine line is tough because you've got a wide variety from four to eight years old of every type of personality that may or may not want your school of teaching. And again, like you just pass them on to the next school, then this club may not be for you. So if you want to smoke a joint coming onto the mat with your belt strung around your neck, this isn't the place for you. And that's hard to do because you want that student, but you have to pass them on if they don't align with your philosophies. Did that kind of answer the yeah, question? Yeah, absolutely. Steve, what are you thinking? Yeah, I've, I definitely, I'm, my gut and my heart tell me to ask the question, can we replace the word tradition with process? Sure. Yeah. Because I think that the word process helps people buy into the tradition by by maybe depending on the context of course the rigidity of tradition um, might need to be there but can we allow or give time for athletes or people to access tradition by explaining that it's part of the process like there's there's things that enhance who we are as people and traditions can have um a lot of impact on who we are as people because it becomes part of our process like by allowing yourself the time to slow down be mindful enough to acknowledge, okay, I need to bow before I go on the mat. And keep in mind, in, in, in terms of martial arts, my context is super limited because I'm so new. But I know at my club, um, it's a very casual start where, where you know, we're into our geese, our belts are tied up, we're on the mat, and we're chit-chatting. But then when Gigi says it's time to start, everybody in that gym knows what that means. We're going to get lined up. We're going to go through our, our major joint mobility. We're going to get a little bit of cardio in terms of our like dynamic warm up with our shrimping and our, our break falls and all this. And once the class starts, like he has got that switched on that when he says it's time, we now know that we have to go through the process that includes the traditions. And I know for, for whatever sport it is that you're, you're coaching or navigating, especially working with youth, it's like having them understand that process helps build character and character is what builds integrity. I think that, Tradition can feel a little, a little rigid and standoffish at times, but if we can explain to them it's part of a process, it's going to enhance who you are as a person, then their willingness to buy into tradition and accept tradition um, enhances, enhances who they become as part of it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sarah, what are you thinking? Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of unique. So my, my jujitsu school... Uh, is combat base and it is a very it has its own unique culture that has been well established for many years and well by um you know professor shibaro and so you know i've just been thinking about you know like get, we are a i would say like a semi-traditional school but it's very like progressive and process oriented also um like it's kind of funny we actually just recently did away with the traditional um like lining up before class and everyone was just kind of like, just don't know what to do with my hands, like those first couple days, you know, and I would say like 90% of us all still will bow on and off of the mat, you know, that has just been ingrained in us for, you know, such a long time now, but it hasn't changed the quality of the program or the quality of the people, you know, the, the coaching team has done such a good job of establishing what that culture is. And so the people who don't belong will self-select out. And I think that has allowed us to maintain a really healthy, progressive way of teaching jujitsu and making a culture that progresses to accept those who choose to be there. I like that. Sean, what are you thinking? Well, all kinds of things, but one of my jobs over here is to stir the pot up a little bit. So I might as well grab my big wooden spoon. And so, uh, I, I agree with uh, Kathy's um, statements. Uh, she started us off on this uh, particular tangent or this uh, direction. And uh, I, I completely agree with Kathy in the spirit of things. However, and, and then, you know, everyone else uh, kind of piled in and, and gave their um, nuance to it. But I think in the spirit of things, it's still in line with what uh, Kathy's saying. 
but uh, now I'm going to disagree. So I said I agree, but now I'm going to disagree. Because um, I can think of a number of times in my life where I've been that guy, either with my thumbs in my belt or my arms folded, standing in front of a bunch of men 20, 30, 40 years ago, we'll say, where all I had to do was stand in front of them and play my traditional role without saying a freaking word and getting about a thousand years worth of work done in those few seconds as they observed me. That's, that's tradition. That's what tradition will do. Not a word has to be spoken. You're representing a body of work that goes back centuries before you even say a word. If you hold yourself properly. If you hold your space in a way that is traditionally reflective of what you're about to represent. Now, what you do once you open your mouth, well, you might blow it. But the, the fact remains that if you, if you grab your belt and you stand there and observe the crowd in front of you and portray what you're trying to represent as thousands of years of information, it can be done. And with the right people in that crowd, if you've got a hundred in front of you, maybe there'll only be three, maybe there'll be 12. It doesn't matter what the number is, but there's going to be people in that crowd that are going to look at that and think, I'm a lifer. I don't know what is even going on right now. What's up with this dude wearing black with his arms folded? I don't know what's going on, but I want some of that. And that will cause them to forge a path that goes on for years and years and years, a path that they don't understand. But in a, in a few seconds, they saw the right person at the right time representing tradition correctly, and now they're a lifer. And so I, I don't want to like um, throw the hardcore traditionalists under the bus, even though sometimes they deserve it. I don't want to throw them under the bus totally, because if you play that role well, you can really change people's lives. But here's the trick. You can't be one dimensional. You've got to be able to play many roles. You've got to be able to represent many things. You've got to be able to stand in front of a crowd and not say a word and change minds. And then you've got to step into the crowd and listen to the words and have your mind changed. I hope that makes sense. Bam. Dropping bombs every day on the coaches week. I love this. So any other thoughts on that? I, like I, I really do. I, I can't thank you guys enough for that one. Cause I really enjoyed it. The, uh, any other thoughts on it though, before we, I got another question here. So if you guys are good. Right. Yeah. Well, I would just, I would just say to what Sean just said, I don't know if that really gets at really being traditional, more so being the embodiment of what you're practicing and, and more so what you're preaching. Because I mean, it could be a, a new concept, but if you fully embody and you elude that confidence to the topic, people are going to want to follow you. Like that's just part of like that pack mentality. But I, I don't necessarily know if that's traditional or just the fact that like in that situation, you've created a space where you present yourself as the expert and you do it in a way where you don't even have to speak about it, but people will want to follow you. Like you've self-marketed, you've succeeded, you've made it to that top tier of come with me. That's a fair point. I, I agree. And, and by adding that granularity, Sarah, you've kind of, you've, you've cleaned up my message for me but you've made it more complicated for me. So I do appreciate <laughs> that. And so the devil's in the details, man. Like, just like Sarah just cherry picked out some uh, details there and added nuance to it. We're, we're addressing things generalistically right now. We're making kind of almost broad sweeping wisdom statements for lack of a better term, but <clears throat> it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. We have to understand who's in front of us and deliver to the person who's in front of us that is going to be swipe them off to the left. Now, another person is going to be in front of us and they're different. And so we have to deliver differently each time. But uh, uh, I'll stick. I'll still stick with my spirit of tradition has its place and it's our jobs to understand how to use it as a tool rather than use it as a dogmatic existence. Steve, yeah. you had a thought there? Yeah, my um, 
I just keep coming back to the the idea idea of age of our people that we're working with as well, right? Like if if um, and I'm not sure it makes a difference, but it it's just where my head's going is like if Sean is standing there with his thumbs in his belt, being a role model and portrayal of of excellence and tradition, and he's doing that in front of a room of uh, people like me at 45 years old versus a room of people at 12 years old versus a room of people at 17 years old. Does that, does the perception of what he's doing change? And I'm not sure it does because he's portraying what he, what excellence looks like or tradition looks like in those cases. But I think that the, the age of the people that we're navigating, I think always feels really important to me. Um, because it's the follow-up of what that is doing to that impressionable aged person. Does the, does the uptake of what he's representing, um, impact the execution and follow-up? And we know it does, but I just, I think at some point I'd love to kick around the idea of like where that goes age contextually. Mm, that is an interesting thought. Kathy, you got a uh, point at all? Yeah, interesting. With the age, I was going to mention the same. Hold if... on a sec. Can you bring your mic down from your hat? And... Sorry, I had to get my battery. Okay. Sorry. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, what Steve said about age, that was what I was going to touch on as well with the, um, you know, three to six-year-old class, of course, the guy standing with his thumbs in his black belt, it's not going to, I don't think, make a major mind shift for a four-year-old that he needs to follow that presence standing in the corner, but possibly the 11 year old who's really keen and has been studying judo since he was seven and knows all about Professor Kano. And that's almost a representation of Professor Jigoro Kano standing in the uh, corner with his presence that he has. But what I find really cool about a lot of these old school senseis now coming from the corner with the presence, the omnipresence and helping in the seven-year-old to 11-year-old class and now they're contributing and they're not only this presence that you know we've talked about for weeks and now here he is in the corner this guest sensei who's so omnipresent but now they come and they they engage with the seven to 11-year-olds and that's where the impressionable minds get shifted I think because now they're actually engaging with them and making them feel part of that omnipresence. And that's where some minds can be really, really shifted to be a lifer. And the age could be 30, could be 40 even to make that mind shift. You know, it just takes sometimes that myelination, I think they call it, when your myelin is changed by one specific person that comes into the country that won the tennis championship and nobody ever was a tennis champion in the entire country. And now all the little girls in the whole entire country take up tennis suddenly and then that nation becomes the tennis champion country of the world. And that took that one girl that became the tennis champion. So it might be that one sensei in the corner that comes in, engages with that seven-year-old, makes that impression, his mind shifts for life, and he becomes that future world judo champion. And not only that, but passes that omnipresence on to the next generation when he's a sensei. Cool stuff. Yeah, I like it. Sarah, you got any anything to add on that? No, I, I think those are great points, um, especially... I think in the space of martial arts, right? Because we have kids class, we have, you know, women's classes. And then that's, that's a whole other level too. When we start to look at, you know, gender separation, like even though our classes are co-ed, the way that um, a coach is able to motivate and appeal to a female athlete might be entirely different than their male athletes. And then that's, that's like maybe the guy like standing in the belt is going to really put off those new female white belts unintentionally, but that's a consideration. Or maybe it's, you know, a like a female for just in the space of female athletes, maybe the most influential person in that room is not the four stripe black belt, but it's the two stripe brown belt, you know, and that that person might not even be aware of the influence that they have for those new female athletes. And so I think I really like this topic because I think it delves us into this space of cultural dynamic within like a, a gym or a club, right? And how that culture is important to athlete retention, to athlete growth, 
you know, and success of that business or school overall. I like it. The, uh, I was actually, I was thinking used again, the, uh, I, I was thinking about this as you guys were talking was the fact that it really kind of depends also on what that, what the student himself is seeking, right? I, I have a more traditional mind. So when I was looking for a jujitsu studio, I found one that was more traditionally minded, but there are people that don't want that tradition or want a competitive style versus hobbyist style, right? Somebody that just wants to go and train and enjoy it. And for the actual sport of it, some people want to go win championships. Some people want to, you know, work with a world champion who's the instructor, whatever it is, right? The, uh, I think that plays a part of it too. And I, I want to get your guys' thoughts on that in terms of as a coach, when you're seeing people come in the door or coming into, uh, to be coached by you and being able to read that and go, how do you, how do you either accept it and then kind of mold it, I guess, or, uh, just kind of let it free flow and run on its own. Sean, I'm going to come to you first on this one. What do you think? Well, I do want to distinguish between, again, individual coaching and group coaching. They're two radically different things, which we absolutely don't have time to uh, delineate between the two. So uh, let's go back to the group coaching aspect. And I'm going to use what Sarah proposed as the example, because it was a great example. So we've got a, a mega black belt on the mat and Maybe they're running the show and there's a bunch of white belts that are on the mats and they're the folks that are being instructed. And maybe as, as the, maybe the group is struggling a little bit <clears throat> and uh, maybe they're looking for a solution there. And, and maybe the black belt realizes that the brown belt can sort this out and then they establish, okay, go sort that out and presto change everyone wins. But that isn't a very nuanced observation, in my opinion, because the most influential person in that room is not the two-stripe brown belt. It's the two-stripe white belt with all of her friends, all of her new friends who are day oneers. And they're going to look at her to see how she reads the black belt, to see how she reads the brown belt, to see if she's happy. Because if she's not liking what she's what's going down, she's going to roll her eyes and look at her friends say, this ain't cool. And now you've got a contagion ripping across the mat where everybody's unhappy with what's going on through a failure to identify who the most important person in that room was, which is literally the two-stripe white belt because they have the most influence in that room. So we talk about power dynamics or cultural power dynamics on a mat. More often than not, it ain't the black belt that's running the mats. That's just a thought. Bam. Kathy, what are you thinking? Yeah, 100% agree with Sean there. It's um, something that uh, I think, especially in martial arts, because they can get culty with the head professor being in charge of the show, trying to prove himself that he is the cult leader there and you all better follow me. And it gets to be a pack mentality. And like Sean says, if the one girl or guy just worships that professor, the rest kind of follow suit. And it weeds out the ones that aren't worshipers and they go away to another more cult-like club. And the ones that stay at the, you know, one that's got some good balance, those are the ones, like Sean said, the white belt girl talks to her friends and nine of her girlfriends join and they have this great balance because they got competitors there, but also the brand new girls that all just joined who can socialize through jujitsu. And that's a balanced club. They don't have one man at the head that commands all of it, attention and ego centric. And they have maybe six or seven other female and male coaches going around and sometimes they're just blue belts sometimes even white belts but they're good coaches and they care about people and that's more important in a club to have those type of roaming around assistant coaches uh helping run the show than just one man running the show never to be um questioned so i agree 100 percent with john the the group dynamic 
is uh, something to really pay attention to. And white belts are people too. And sometimes the most successful clubs in the world are run by maybe a blue belt, but he has good people skills and he's supported by other blue and purple belts and white belts that have good people skills and they make a good dynamic and everybody's good on the mats together. And the high level seventh degree black belt that won nine world championships that thinks he's God and opens an academy, maybe he doesn't have the membership he thought he might have. He's got a few devoted worshipers, but why hasn't he got retention and why doesn't he have membership growth? So personally, I'd rather be part of the, the fun club that has a uh, good balance and also has competitors too. Absolutely. <clears throat> Steve, you got any thoughts on this? For sure. Yeah. One thing that I was taught very early in my life, um, believe it or not, in the world of retail, when I was, I was running a bike shop in my early years of college, and a, an old timer told me once, he said, when somebody walks through the door, the worst thing you can say to somebody is, can I help you? Right? The reason they walk through the door is because they are looking for something. So the very simple question becomes, how can I help you? And I think that spills directly into coaching um, directly. It's something that I've, I've used as a foundation for a lot of years is like, if somebody has walked through the door or onto the trail or into an environment. And I want to be really careful too, that our audience is like also acknowledging that a lot of this doesn't just refer to a martial arts dojo or, or a set of mats. This is like across whatever it is you're working with. The people are there because they're looking for service. Like they're looking for a way to be taken care of. And by making the assumption, it's not like, can I help you? It's like, how can I help you? How can I be of service to you? I think that, um, that allows us to sort of soften, uh, and maybe softens the wrong word, but it allows an openness for folks to come in and just start, right? It's like, I'm of service to you. How can I, how can I help? And at that, and like Sean and, and all of us have talked about, it's, it, it is, it's a nuanced thing, right? Because for somebody to enjoy an experience or to have the bravery to start an experience, they're going to feel all the feels right? It's going to be, it's going to be an all encompassing thing. And so knowing that their coach or their crew or their, or their just environment is ready to serve them, um, I think allows, allows somebody to start something that could be lifelong. And I, I, I get really excited about the lifelong process of, of whatever it is anybody is pursuing. And if we get to be a part of that, because we were open enough to help them get started, then man, oh man, that fires me up. Absolutely. Sarah, you got any thoughts? You got to unmute yourself, Sarah. Hey, Sarah, you got to unmute yourself. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Sorry. New computer technology struggles. Um, no, I, we just, we've talked about so many like great things in, in this dialogue and my, my brain has gone a couple different places, but yeah, I, I really like um, what Kathy said, though, about creating like a balanced club, right? You know, and, and to Steve's point, not necessarily just in martial arts, but that balance and that openness creates environments across all things in that group setting for a an environment that has the capacity to grow. And as coaches, if we are in the group setting, ultimately growth is how we succeed. But understanding that growth doesn't always mean quantity to Sean's earlier point, right? That growth can be centered in quality and engaging in quality throughout a lifelong business or practice. Absolutely. I uh, had just a, a little thought and then we're going to, we're going to have to shut her down because we're running short on time here. But the uh, Stevie brought up a great point in terms of retail. And I was remembering back in the day when I was selling stuff, the best way to make sales was to start a conversation rather than try to sell something. If I was trying to sell something, I would rarely do it. But when I started a conversation, I almost always made sales just from, Hey, how's it going? What are you looking for? Anything I can assist you with? And just, just like creating that conversation around what it is they're there for anyway, because they're coming to see you. And when I'm at jujitsu, when I'm uh, training my students, the same thing. I create a conversation about it rather than try to tell them, okay, this is what we're going to learn today. Everybody better follow me. But, uh, I think it's, that's a great point. Uh, let's get some final thoughts and then we'll uh, shut it down for the afternoon. But I just wanted to say thank you guys for the conversation. This has been fantastic. Great 
long form answer to the single question from earlier, which was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. So, um, Steve, I'm going to start with you and I'll work my way up. Final thoughts. Yeah, just um, a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity. I was in Toronto. My son was playing in the National Flag Football Championships um, that was hosted by the NFL. It was a cool, really cool experience. And what I witnessed there, though, in relation to coaching and how youth were treated, and I think it, it spills over into any athlete, is um, was really concerning. And there was one particular scenario where this coach was just ripping on this this kid. And these kids are 13 years old, right? And the kid was off on the side and was had taken a knee and was in tears. And I mean, you know, that's a pretty hard spot for a kid to be in. Right. But what troubled me the most was that nobody was attending to this kid. And so I walked over, this is some kid from Montreal. I didn't know his parents were there. I saw his folks, but I walked over and I just knelt at the side of the field. And I said, Hey kiddo, I said, you know, you're more than football. Right. And he just kind of looked at me. And he just, I said, remember, you are more than just a football player. You're a cool kid. You're having a great experience, but it doesn't look like it's all that fun. Try and go out there and find some fun in it. Okay. And I, and he looked at me and I said, you don't know me and I don't know you, but I feel like you need to hear that. And he kind of just wiped his tears away and off he went. And it just, it, it brings to the point for, for me, it brings forward that like everybody that we work with, they're not just athletes, they're people that are there to be developed and we have to focus on developing all of them and that takes a pretty concerted effort and it i think it takes a a mindset that is willing to go all the way in with people that we're there and and, and our role that we play with them is very very important so 100 percent, love it kathy some final thoughts yeah i love that steve and not only we're there to develop all of the athletes but also each individual athlete, we're there to develop all of that person in that athlete and not just their better judo or get to the black belt in jiu-jitsu or win a world championship, but uh, make them really good people in society and make them giving and empathetic and helping one another. There's the judo saying it's jita kyoe, which means mutual benefit and welfare for all. And I think that applies to all life, not just the martial art. But if we can, as coaches, create some good humans in society that will pass on that good humanness, then we've done our job as coaches. 100%. Sarah, final thoughts? Yeah, I, I love both of those. Uh, I would just say that I hope that even if you are not a coach, you take time to listen to any of Coaches Week because a lot of, I think, what makes coaches successful is just an understanding of how to be a real person with real people. And I think no matter if you are a coach or not, there's been so many valuable pieces to just life in all of the guests this week. And so I think it's a great opportunity to just better yourself as a person to go through and listen, regardless of if you're a coach or not. Absolutely. Sean, some final thoughts? Yeah, as a coach, I think uh, something that I learned at some point in my coaching trajectory, that I'm a servant, not a coach. I'm not building a club, I'm serving a club. I'm not working with someone, I'm working for them. It's how you spin it in your head as a coach, what you tell yourself. If you're a large and in charge black belt, kind of leaning against the wall with your thumbs tucked in your belt, and you're thinking that, you're the man. Now that's one way to look at the world. Another way to look at it is that same individual in that exact same post thinking, I'm a servant. Radically different mindset. So the servant mindset is key as far as I'm concerned. Now, second piece, I got to say it. It's based on what Steve said. And Steve has been in the game long enough that he, I'll say he probably, I'm going to say, 99% read the situation correctly and went over there, did what he did appropriately, and then bounced and made someone's life better and rah rah sis boom bah. However, I don't want that singular message to be, when you see someone struggling, it's all about going over there and giving them a hug. Because it ain't. Sometimes it requires tough love. And I'm reminded of that because this morning I was watching a little clip from David Goggins. He's got like a little five five clip video series that he just dropped. 
and and it's relevant to this conversation. It's kind of relevant to what Steve said, you know, like this this dad who's been working out with David Goggins a long, long time. His son wanted to come out and work oh, yeah. out against David Goggins. Like in his goofy little head, he thought he was large and in charge. And and I mean, he's a bit of a worm right now compared to David Goggins. I mean, like, dude, you're way down there. Take a breath and start growing into your skin for a little bit. This kid showed up, had all kinds of attitude, had all kinds of thought he was large and in charge, which he absolutely wasn't. So if you're if you don't know what I'm talking about, you don't have to watch all five clips. Just watch the third clip because the third clip is where the kid's got a plastic bag in front of his face and he's trying to vomit. And he does. And David Goggins is kind of laughing at him, just like I was laughing at him as I watched it. In fact, I made a comment. I rarely ever comment on any David Goggins stuff. I just said, LOL, comma, get after it, young fella. Good. Freaking get that vomit out of you there, pal. And then shake your silly head and get with the program that is called you didn't know what you were talking about. That's called humility. And you know what? If, if, if you only watch one video today, that's the video to watch because it will help you understand that the entire world isn't constantly hugging. Sometimes you got to look at a situation and say, ah, oh, stop your moaning and get on with the program. Or you're not that big of a deal. Wipe your tears away and get back to work. You've got to read the situation as a coach and to read the situation. Sometimes it's tough love and sometimes it's a hug. So don't solve everything with this or solve everything with that. Figure out how to play with those two extremes and go make the world a better place. I really love that. And I just want to add to this point is that they're <clears throat> tough love and hugging are both love. And I think that's the key thing that most people forget about that is that it is a, if I want the best for somebody, there's going to be a range in which I can achieve that. And I have to be able to utilize all of that, especially with my boys. I'm sure they don't like it when I am tough with them, but when they're 20 and they look back on it and go, oh yeah, dad instilled me these particular skills that allow me to be able to do these things. And then they'll appreciate it. It's just about time. It's about being able to reflect on it, all these things. And I had this perfect image of somebody just vomiting up their ego, right? And that's all that is, right? Just blah, there it goes, blah, there it goes. Okay. And then you got to learn from it. So I, I really love that. I might even turn it into a t-shirt. We'll see some merch. Um, quick comment here. KH jumps in here and says, but aren't we supposed to follow the sapper? Great conversation today. Collective crew. Good to see you, Carl. You owe me a question. I sent you a message. You owe me a question. So shoot, hit me up, man. And we'll put it up tomorrow on the rest of the last day of Coaches Week, which again, guys, thank you guys so much for being on Coaches Week. This has been a fantastic conversation. The only thing I can really end this with is again. Is the guests giving us 15 seconds about who they are. That's Let's how we'll it. end it. And then you can Let's go into your little, uh, little, my little diatribe. Live, laugh, like love. Okay. So Sarah, you got uh, 15 seconds. Hit me up. Who are you? Where you come from? All that good stuff. Sarah Lee, I'm based down in the Dallas, Texas Metroplex Purple Belt in Jiu-Jitsu. I do group coaching and mentorship in the corporate field. Bam. Like it. Kathy, 15 seconds. Go. Kathy Hubble, uh, stunt coordinator in the film industry, uh, BJJ and Judo Black Belt, and uh, I'm here to serve. There you go. Bam. World champion. Just throwing that in there. Steve, how about yourself? 15 seconds. Steve Wilson, high school teacher, outdoor ed leader, and mountain bike coach, and lover of all things. Lover of all things. Well, that's a broad statement. I like generalistic. <laughs> right. So, well, as we all try to figure that out, I hope you all are <laughs> at home, learning, building, growing with us every day here on The Collective. We'll see you all tomorrow. Chimo. Chimo. Chimo.